Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley, joined as always by Corey McCartney right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game for... Another couple of hours of Braves and baseball talk. Excited to bring that to you and even more excited to be able to come to you after a four-game sweep by the Atlanta Braves who have now won six games in a row. And boy, did they ever need that after losing four out of five to the New York Mets. And we'll be talking all about the battle for first place in the National League East, which is still very much ongoing. But, Corey, it is about to reach, I think, a fever pitch, if you will, because now the Mets are due into Truist Park as the Braves begin, I think, their biggest homestand of the season with their biggest series of the season against the Mets again. Yeah, I will argue this is the biggest week of the season for the Braves when you think about the Mets, followed by the Astros. And I have to ask you, there's a Grissom call on the intro to the show. That's a different one. Yeah, so so Vaughn has not already (laughs) cracked his way into the intro. But I think that, that, that might be coming. It very well could, and we'll see how it all plays out. You're really getting into what's been going on this week for the Braves. That's how we always started off. Before we get that started, though, I want to remind you, you can follow me on Twitter, at Grant McCauley. Find Corey, at Corey J. McCartney. The show is at From the Diamond underscore, and you can also subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts or find it on the Odyssey app. With all of that shilling out of the way, Corey, let's dive into this week in Braves baseball, and let's start with what was probably a strange but great series for the Braves in Miami. We saw a lot of different things in it was a weekend packed full of news. It was also a weekend packed full of wins. I guess that's if you want to hashtag tweet the positives. You're happy with this four-game sweep. You had some uh, pitchers that you may not have expected really lead the Braves staff because Max Fried is on the injured list. Kyle Wright's a little bit dinged up, a little bit weary, as the case may be. And, of course, one of those pitchers that threw well for you is on his way to AAA Gwinnett to sort things out. At least that's the plan for right now. What stood out to you about this sweep of the Marlins down in Miami this weekend? I think it was the the... With the productivity that you got on the mound from some unexpected sources, I don't think we saw Bryce Elder going 10 Ks uh, Sunday. Nope. Kyle Muller in his softball glove, you know, looking fantastic on Saturday in that doubleheader, and of course Ian Anderson, you know, having already been optioned to Triple uh, A Gwinnett, sticking around in the taxi squad to be the 27th man for the doubleheader uh, on Saturday. Then going back to Gwinnett and being really effective in his start, and we'll see if that's the last that we see of him uh, lately because there's some opportunities ahead if things shake out where they might need some help this week against the Mets. Uh, but certainly a very well-pitched series, and obviously, you know, the, the productivity of Vaughn Grissom, the rookie, just, uh, you know, I don't know that we can say enough, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure, about the ridiculous uh, run that they've had here of rookie success the Braves have, but just a, a fantastic first week out of this guy. Yeah, absolutely tremendous uh, work by Vaughn Grissom. We're going to talk a lot about him on this week in Braves baseball, but while he was an integral player, and uh, as a matter of fact, on Sunday, was very important to the Braves' ninth inning rally that got him a 3-1 win over the Marlins to complete the four-game sweep, I think the tone was set on the mound. And, you know, the reason why Kyle Muller had to be brought up and the reason why you had to turn to Bryce Elder on a Sunday was in particular 
injuries. And Max Fried, who we talked about this last week, I was surprised that he had not, you know, there hadn't been a, a I guess, a, a determination as far as the concussion IL or concussion protocols as of that day or the day after up in New York. It took a few days for Max to really start feeling the ill effects of uh, colliding or, or well, landing not so gingerly in foul territory up the first baseline, trying to make a throw. I thought he might have hurt his shoulder. I knew he went face first into the turf, but as it turned out, when he went to throw his side session to get ready for his next start, that was when he really started to not feel so great. So Max Fried's on the concussion IL. We're not sure if we're going to see him in the Mets series yet. We'll find that out over the next few days. Uh, the Braves have gone ahead and looked and lined up their rotation as best they can, assuming that you're not going to see Max Fried in the first three games, which we now know. But then Kyle Wright's news came down that he is dealing with a little bit of arm fatigue, not something that he's overly concerned with, but the Braves opted to show some concern and, and and give him a a start off, I guess, skip a start for him and turn to Kyle Muller and have Ian Anderson already the 27th man to throw in the doubleheader. And then, of course, Bryce Elder. I mean, this is the one that came out of nowhere. And as you mentioned, Corey, seven innings of one-run ball with a career-high 10 strikeouts. I mean, this kid was everything the Braves needed. I was just hoping Atlanta would figure out a way to score some runs for him. And it happened in the ninth inning. Home run by Michael Harris and then a rally where they were able to just scratch together a few pieces of good luck and take advantage of some wildness in order to score the runs they needed to win a game. The Braves have been the most productive team in baseball from the number nine spot. They lead the majors in average home runs, extra base hits, RBI, are second in way to run creative plus, and that's obviously been pumped up by the game's best number nine hitter, Michael Harris, the second, hitting 300 in that spot, 35% above league average, and he obviously built on that Sunday with that just, I mean, just a dead solo shot. I mean, the kid just continues to just amaze each and every week. And, I mean, I think we're getting into a a real interesting discussion here about who is ultimately going to be the National League Rookie of the Year because the Braves are going to have a couple guys in the forefront of that conversation. Yeah, they do. Michael Harris, of course, has been at the center of it since he came up. He's been really one of the keys to the Braves' success in turning their season around at the end of May when he made his Major League debut, then the 14-game winning streak that started June. Every time you look around in a series or in a game just about, Michael Harris is doing something to help the Braves win. And that, of course, has been a big reason why he is not only a productive hitter, but a premier defender and one of the big reasons for the Braves' turnaround in the standings. But Spencer Strider's right there with him. We'll talk a lot more about Spencer Strider later on. He was scheduled to throw in the Miami series. They've opted to push him back. So he'll be facing his friends, the New York Mets, again. And after the last time they met, that should be some really interesting television on Monday at Truist Park. But, you know, talking a little bit about Kyle Muller, of course, you know, we've expected with the way that he was pitching this year, an opportunity would present itself. The broken hand, though, that he suffered, a non-pitching hand, was something that set him back, I think, a few weeks. And has had Ian Anderson going start to start for quite a little while. And, you know, I was really happy to see Muller come up and pitch well because the last time he was brought up back on May the 1st in Texas, that was a disastrous start for him. Didn't escape the third, allowed seven runs, walked a whole bunch of hitters. The Kyle Muller that emerged in Gwinnett over the last three months, though, has been a totally different pitcher, and he showed some of that on Saturday. Yeah, he had three two seven ERA in AAA, but he was striking out 11-1 per nine, which is his best since rookie ball. He was walking 2.5 per nine, which is the lowest uh, of any uh, level that he's had across his career. So I think that's why it was so interesting to see him, you know, one, have to deal with this this issue with his hand and have to go to Dick's Sporting Goods and pick himself up a softball glove because of he was trying to, he had to, trying to create more <laughs> space uh, to get his hand into. I mean, just this mammoth Easton glove that he was rocking uh, in, in the mound there 
in Miami, but I mean, he was just fantastic, right? I mean, he had a thirty percent swing and riff, uh, swing and miss rate on the the pitches uh, in total in, in that outing. I mean, the the four seam looked good. The slider was fantastic. It looked really good with the curveball. Just showed a really great mix, and obviously, you know, was able to to, to put the Braves in a position uh, there to win a game against the Marlins. But I. I, I I would love to see him stick around and get a couple more opportunities just because I thought he did look so effective. If you have questions with Kyle Wright, you know, you got to remember with, with Wright, I mean, he's 10 innings from the most he's ever thrown in pro ball, which was four years ago. And obviously when you're dealing with arm fatigue, that's something you're concerned about. Uh, with uh, Max Freed here, you know, dealing with persistent headaches after that tumble in New York. Yeah. I mean, you won't want to rush him back. So I think there's a, there's some question marks here in this rotation, and there's an opening in the last day of that Mets series. So I will be intrigued to see how they uh, proceed with that. Yeah, it will be very interesting because as we talked about the pitching of Kyle Muller, we talked about the pitching of Bryce Elder, and of course we're going to talk about the pitching of Ian Anderson, who was a guy that found himself finally being optioned out by the Braves after what seemed to just be this up-and-down series of starts for him over the last couple of months. This is a guy who has now won 10 games for the Braves. He's gotten a lot of run support, but his start in Miami, I felt like, hopefully can be a, a really a place where he can start to build on. And Ian Anderson discussed you know, what that start means to him and what it means going forward as he tries to turn his season around with reporters after Game 2 on Saturday. Anything that you specifically kind of felt like in your head when you went out there tonight, this was your mindset? Um, not really anything in particular. You know, just, just show the team that I feel like I can contribute and you know, hopefully I'll get another crack here soon. Because of that option, do you feel like you had more to prove tonight maybe than, than normal? No, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, I didn't look into it too much like that. You, know, you have things that do motivate you, and that's definitely something that did. But, yeah, I just tried to go out there and you know pitch my game, and uh, I thought we played a good game, You know, kept on the attack. And keeping on the attack, I think, is a big key for him going forward, Corey. That seems to be, at least for me, one of the big things that's been a difference in Ian Anderson from when he came up and some of the success that he has had in the postseason to what we've been seeing a lot in 2022 is he just seems to be behind in the count an awful lot. It wasn't really the case. He had a long first inning, but then he really started to settle in on Saturday. I think that's a positive for him to take down to Gwinnett or wherever his next start may be. It had to feel like, you know, he was being punished by his parents, but it's the end of like, okay, you're going to be punished, but... You know, just wait a little bit. And we're going to get to it when we get home after we get over this, you know, needing you for this time period that we need. And by the way, just stick around, get to hang out with your friends and we're going to use you on this day. But when we get home, you're going to be grounded for sure. It had to be kind of this weirdness to him, right? Of just sticking around the taxi squad and getting that start on Saturday. But uh, I think the things that you looked for from Ian Anderson that had been an issue before, I mean, I'm not saying they all corrected themselves in one start, but the the, the whiff rate on the changeup was 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 crazy. You know, 15 swings, eight whiffs, so a 53 percent rate there. Mm-hmm. Um, just looked really effective with the pitch. It's down to a 209 batting average against. Obviously, that's been you know the the tent pole pitch for him as a major leaguer. Uh, it just looked a lot more effective in that start. And obviously, you know, we've talked about this countless times on here. With him, it all sets up with that fastball and how he builds off of it. But I thought the arsenal for him just was a lot more what you expect in that Saturday start. Well, I feel like Sunday was a great day for the Braves overall and capping off this sweep to build on the momentum that Ian Anderson and Kyle Muller showed on Saturday. Bryce Elder, again, was terrific with 10 strikeouts over seven innings. The Braves' offense got going in the ninth inning, scored three runs, got a game-tying home run from Michael Harris the second, and then scratched across a couple of runs. And they had to win this on a game where not only did you have, you know, kind of a an unproven commodity on the mound that you weren't sure exactly what you were going to get, but I think even if you were optimistic, seven innings of one-run ball probably wasn't on your bingo card. And then you had Ronald Acuna Jr. having to sit out this game because of right knee soreness. Now, we saw this crop up. Uh, when he was running the bases in the seventh inning of Saturday's Game 2, 
Now Ronald Acuna Jr., he was able to pinch hit on Sunday. I think that overall will show you that they're not overly concerned with this, but you have to be cautious when it is that knee that Ronald Acuna Jr. injured, and you really need to have your best player, who, by the way, on this road trip has been roasting hot and has seemed to have turned his season around, including a leadoff home run in Game 2. So all of the things, that the signs seem to be trending right for Ronald Acuna Jr., and then, of course, we have this little bit of a question about the knee, Corey. Yeah, and I think you have to take into account that he played 18 innings on Saturday. You know, certainly that's, true. that's I mean, that's, that's a major true. factor of it, too. And, and But he's been fantastic in this month, right? I mean, I think we've talked about this. After he had admitted that the knee wasn't always 100%, he goes out and has an, an August to start where he's hitting 58% above league average. Um, just looked fantastic in that road series against the Mets. You know, robs the Pete Alonzo home run, you know, it just and then hits the leadoff home run in on Saturday against the Marlins. So I think he looks a lot more like the Acuna that we've become accustomed to a lot more explosiveness, um, just seems to be having a lot more fun out there. Uh, and obviously that's uh, that's to the Braves' benefit and to the chagrin of everybody that's going to have to face him going forward. No, it certainly should be because when you look at what Ronald Acuna Jr. brings to the Braves team when he is going and setting the tone at the top of the order, it's unlike what I think any other player can give them when you talk about the impact that he can be. And in 42 at-bats on this road trip, 16 hits for him, a couple of homers, five runs knocked in. So he batted 381 and was OPSing nearly 970. So looking pretty good, Ronald Acuna Jr. was, and hopefully his status for the opener against the Mets on Monday is all systems go. Rays winners on Sunday, 3-1 to one as they sweep away the Miami Marlins. We've got a lot more to come on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more from the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back in from the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you right here from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. We appreciate you making this part of your Sunday and joining us after the Braves picked up a 3-1 win in dramatic fashion behind great pitching from Bryce Elder and a three-run ninth inning for the Braves. Michael Harris getting it started with a game-tying home run. And then the Braves get a little bit of, I would say, well-placed good luck for them to score a couple of runs and beat the Marlins by that 3-1 score, finish off that four-game sweep, extend the winning streak to six games in a row, Corey, and that's what they call momentum. And the Braves will take that as much as they can, and we've talked about some of the things they had to overcome this weekend, but they'll take as much of that as they can get as they head into this Mets series, uh, and they will be hosting the Mets beginning for four games on Monday at Truist Park. And one of the big stories of this week, of course, I don't know if there was a bigger one, was the somewhat surprising call-up that the Braves Uh, made in the Boston series, and that was bringing Vaughn Grissom to the big leagues after Orlando Arcia hurt himself, uh, landed on the injured list with a strained hamstring. Vaughn Grissom was called up from double-A where he didn't even have 100 plate appearances yet, but the returns have been outstanding. A couple of home runs, a whole bunch of base hits, a lot of times on base, and holding down the second base position as the Braves continue to wait for Ozzie Albies to return. But as we've seen, Corey, the Braves will not hesitate to call up a player that they think they can help him from double-A. We have seen it happen with Michael Harris this year. We saw it last year. Spencer Strider, he may have stopped in Gwinnett for a moment, but he didn't spend a lot of time there, and he's now a big contributor for the Braves' rotation. So if you are young and ready to play and can help the Braves and there's a need, it seems like anything can happen. And for Vaughn Grissom, what an amazing debut at Fenway Park. And Everything since then has seemed to be a lot of fun for him as well. Yeah, a ridiculous week for this kid, right? And it's it's pretty incredible when you think about the Braves opening the season with Michael Harris II as the organization's top-ranked prospect. 
He's up to the majors. The newly minted number one prospect, Vaughn Grissom, comes up. And without missing a beat, he you know debuts Wednesday in Fenway Park. It's a two-run bomb. Uh, then just goes on and just has this monster week. Seven for 18, the first player to score in the first five games of their career in Braves history and the first overall since Jordan Alvarez in 2019. I mean, he just keeps coming. He had another multi-hit game on Sunday. Um, it's, it's not supposed to be this easy for rookies to come up and have this impact and do so while completely skipping AAA. But, I mean, think about you know, all this talk that the that the farm system was what no longer what it once was. And you've yeah. got, you think post-Nansby Swanson and Ozzie Albies and Acuna, Riley, Freed, Soroka, Anderson, supposedly going to fall back to the pack. Then in the last year, you've had William Contreras, Spencer Strider, Harris, and now Vaughn Grissom all come up. And I mentioned this to you before, the night that, that Grissom mm-hmm. debuts, seven players on that on that lineup for the Braves, all of them had debuted as Braves. So um, it's just been a, a unbelievable run of young players coming up and making impacts. It really has been. Vaughn Grissom, the latest in that line of players, as you mentioned. I mean, you look at up and down Atlanta's you know, uh, the roster that they have constructed and the success they've had over the last four years, culminating with winning the World Series in 2021. And there are a lot of homegrown Brave stars, or at the very least, players that were acquired as prospects during the rebuild who made their debuts with the Braves. And you just went through a great list of those as well. And I don't know what the future holds for Vaughn Grissom. I mean, in the near term, it's come up and make the most of your opportunity to play second base for the Braves until Ozzie Albies gets back. And hopefully that grows closer by the day. I know Ozzie's ramped up his his rehab and is no longer having to be in that boot on a regular basis. And those are promising reports. But until we see Ozzie in a baseball uniform on a rehab assignment, it's hard to know when exactly he's going to be rejoining the Braves. And second base has been kind of a black hole for the Braves, offensively speaking, this year after having last season with Ozzie Albies, one of the biggest offensive threats you can find at the position, Ozzie was off to a slow start. And by and large, the numbers that the Braves have gotten out of that position have not reached his lofty standards of a year ago or the kind of season he had in 2019. So the the question has been, can the Braves find some production and some consistency at a second base? And Vaughn Grissom finds himself walking into what I feel like is a golden opportunity to really make an impact on this team and really start to springboard himself into a regular for the Braves. And if you hit, Corey, they'll find you a spot. They will. And he came on with the Braves 25th in uh, Fangraph War in terms of production out of second base since Ozzie Albies went down on June 13th with that injury. Obviously, as you mentioned, Ozzie was not having the most spectacular seasons before the injury, uh, but they were just clearly missing some cohesiveness at that spot. And yeah. much in the way that Harris provided that in center field, you know, they were not getting it done with this combination of you know Orlando Arcia and, and you know Robinson Cano. That experience experiment just failed. I love the fact that they were just willing to to go with the young guy instead of saying, okay, you know, what do we have at AAA? What do we have in some veterans that can maybe come in? Obviously, Braden Shoemaker's season-ending knee injury kind of yeah. shuffled the deck here because I think had he not been hurt, more than likely we probably would have saw him get an opportunity here. Uh, but Vaughn Grissom is absolutely taking full advantage of his chance. And sometimes, you know, that's just the way it works out. I mean, baseball, sports, life, I mean, different things happen. And because of that, you know, we feel the the reverberations of it. And, yeah, maybe we would have seen Braden Shoemaker because he was in AAA and would seem to be maybe the next likely guy as far as prospects are concerned to come up. There were also a whole bunch of guys with big league time as infielders on that Gwinnett Stripers club, and the Braves chose 
not to go that route. Instead, they chose to go with Vaughn Grissom, and I think they've been rewarded for their faith in this young prospect's ability to be a bat that could make a difference, and he's been that thus far through the first couple of series, and hopefully a lot more games, a lot more series, a lot more seasons to come from Vaughn Grissom uh, when it comes to his opportunity here in Atlanta. Now, if Ozzie Albies can get back, clearly that means a lot for the Braves. I mean, defensively speaking, you're not going to find a better second baseman in Atlanta than Ozzie Albies, maybe uh, going back as far as you want to in this franchise's history. Yeah, he may have started off slow, but this injury really curtailed and took away the opportunity that he had to turn his season around offensively because i got to believe, Corey, Ozzie wasn't going to keep going the way he was going for 162 games. What do you think? No. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, you get this guy the at-bats, he's going to end up figuring things out. I mean, he was hitting, you know, 11% below league average. I mean, the power really wasn't there. But I think you you ultimately believe with Albies that things are going to even themselves out. You know, the strikeout rate was still a little bit lower than before. I, I think once he gets back, it's going to be fascinating to see how do they figure this thing out because, you know, I know there's been some talk on Braves Twitter, which, you know, it, it's kind of can be a, a rabbit hole for all kinds of feels, whether you want to feel positive or negative about this team. But um, certainly there's been a lot of talk on on there about, okay, well, King Vaughn Grissom play in the outfield when Albies comes back, and I don't think you can just throw a guy who's never played in the outfield into the outfield and hope things that go uh, well for him. But right. I, I just think it's going to be an interesting you know, uh, process here, how they're able to work Grissom in. If he continues to hit, uh, how do you find a way to, to continue to use him? Because we, there's all kinds of question marks in that outfield and DH and, and all this, and uh, I think there's going to be it, it's going to be fascinating because we know what Albies is capable of, and when he's back, I don't think you can use him as a platoon player. No, and that's certainly not what I feel like is going to be the case. When Ozzy Albies comes back, he's going to be playing every day. What can you do with Vaughn Grissom? That may come into another an interesting conversation we're going to get into about the Braves' designated hitter and what they're not getting out of that position. But before we do that, I want to circle back in on injuries and things the Braves were dealing with in their time in Miami because it wasn't just the rotation being in flux. Atlanta's been without Travis Darno all week long as he got tangled up with Pete Alonso on a play at the plate in New York. Did not play in the Boston series. We thought we'd see him back in the Miami series, but wasn't quite ready. Kelly Crawl of Bally Sports was reporting on Sunday morning, though, that Darno was out on the field running, putting himself through all the paces to make sure that leg is good to go. He told her he feels like he's checked all the boxes. So having Travis Darno back for the Mets series, that's a big deal. Whether or not he is behind the plate every single game of every single inning like he was in the playoffs, he has value to this team. And having him, along with William Contreras, has been something that's worked out pretty well for the Braves this year in terms of what this catching duo is capable of. Yeah, and I don't know that you're going to get Chadwick Trump to come up and uh, you know give Contreras breathers all the time and come up up with two doubles, you right? Know, a couple RBI, and good for yeah. him too. Yeah, I mean that was a, a fantastic day for him on Saturday. But um, we know what this the, what that combination means uh, to this team and how crucial they've been. And how many you know just options it gives you with you know what where you can move guys around to make sure you're getting Contreras at bats when he's not uh, it, when he's not behind the plate. How you can maybe do the same thing for Darno. So there's a lot of variables at play and how you can involve all those bats. And I think, you know, certainly first and foremost, you got to get them all back and every indication that Travis Darno is going to be back uh, for this upcoming series against the Mets. So that's something worth updating. Now let's kind of jump back into the Vaughn Grissom story, Ozzy Albee's return, which again is not imminent, but it hopefully will happen within the next few weeks. And, you know, maybe in the early part of September, you start asking yourself, how do you fit all these pieces together? Now, as we've seen over the course of 162, Injury can change a lot of plans, and a lot of plans change because of injury for all 30 teams across baseball. But one place the Braves have not been able to find the production that they definitely needed from is a designated hitter spot. And you would think that, you know, between having Ronald Acuna Jr. DHing for a while, William Contreras DHing occasionally as an option for him, 
that maybe you'd have some semi-good production there. But by and large, Marcelo Zuna has been getting the at-bats there, and he has had a down season. And it's a down season that follows a 2021 that was ravaged by injury, by off-field problems, and oh, by the way, not being productive while he was on the field. So now, Corey, we go back and we're looking at basically a full season's worth of numbers for what Marcel has been giving the Braves since the start of 2021. And the numbers are not pretty. But when you look at DH for Atlanta, only three clubs in baseball have worse production in terms of OPS from the DH spot, and that would be the Cleveland Guardians, the Oakland Athletics, and the Seattle Mariners. The Guardians and Mariners might surprise you because they're both winning baseball clubs. The Athletics probably don't surprise you as much. When it comes to home runs, the Braves are able to get a fair amount of home runs from the DH spot because that's been about all that Marcel is offering. But then again, a lot of his home runs this year of his 20 have come while playing left field. So even there, they're kind of in the middle of the pack. But you know, run scoring, all of the things that you're looking for, and of course, wins above replacement, it really points to if you are looking for a place to get Ozzie Albies back, and if Vaughn Grissom is hitting to perhaps get him to make the biggest impact, it may be time to really seriously reassess what Marcelo Zuna offers the club on an everyday basis. I think you kind of have to, right? I mean, among all qualified players, he has the second worst fan graph where he's a minus 1.1 player. So put that into, in, into context here. The Braves' total DH fan graph war is 0.0, and they're getting minus production from the guy who's getting the brunt of the ABs there. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just been bad. It's been woefully bad. And when you say that, keep in mind there's 150 qualified hitters in all of baseball. So if you're at the bottom of the 150 or so qualified hitters, Corey, that is not a good indication of where you are, not only against your peers, but – when it comes to bringing any kind of value to the table. And Marcel this year simply has not when it comes to being a hitter. And that's the number one thing that you needed out of him, right, was With, offensive production. Without question. I mean, there's been 10 players among that group that have a lower weighted run creative plus than him. And remember, that that number is 100. He's at 79. None of those guys are primary D, uh, DHs. Right. And I think, and then you add in, obviously, the defensive limitations that you have with him. Um, you know, he's, I mean, like 350 innings out there and been a negative player uh, in terms of that, too. I mean, I think everyone got caught up in the 2020 magic of a guy that led the National League in home runs and RBIs, and he, I mean, he nearly out, won a triple crown. Yeah, and he goes out and signs that you know that that contract, and you're now on the books for him for three more seasons with a club option for 2025, and it just doesn't feel this four-year, 65 million dollar deal feels like an albatross at this point. And yeah, much like what has happened with the Cubs and Jason Hayward, and the Cubs have decided. They're going to cut bait with Jason Hayward, let him move on, you know, buy, let him be released and, and ultimately sign somewhere else as a free agent, knowing they're going to have to pick up. Uh, they're going to pay all, him. They're going to have to pay right. him while somebody else pays him the league minimum. I'm not saying that's the route that the Braves should go with Marcelo Zuna, but clearly what they're doing right now, getting him consistent ABs, is not working. Regardless of what they do with that contract, which may be an offseason decision for Alex Antopoulos and company, I feel like it's from an on-field productivity in 2022 you're not talking about a small sample size anymore. And while you can look at Marcelo Zuna's baseball savant page and say, okay, well, he does hit the ball hard on a pretty consistent basis, I've also seen a lot of just, you know, there's not really a clutch factor that's going in there, I can tell you that. And there's just been a lot of at-bats, and and really over the last month and a half, that it, it, eventually it's a results-driven business. And as much as you want to talk about how hard he's hitting the ball and how consistently he's hitting the ball, He's not getting any results with it. He's not making an impact from a run production standpoint, and that's a pretty tough order and a, a pretty tough thing for the rest of the lineup to overcome in a lot of cases when your DH, a run producer, is not a run producer because the idea of getting the DH in the lineup was to get some extra offense going, and uh, among other things. But long story short here, I think they're going to reach a critical mass with this decision. If Vaughn Grissom is a contributor that the Braves feel should get those at-bats, 
If they got to come from somewhere, I think the DH spot is a good place to look at it, and maybe that'll be something the Braves will be seriously considering this time three weeks from now. A lot of things can happen, but we'll see. Yeah, and I think you also got to figure out with the catchers, too. I think they have too many at-bats, too many guys that can contribute without question. Yeah, a lot of things to figure out for the Braves, and uh, many of them are good. Some of them, just like every other club, they've just got to find a way to find some answers for it. They sweep away the Marlins, though, this weekend, so good to see that. They get set for a series against the Mets, and we will get ready to take a trip around the big leagues as From the Diamond continues. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley joined as always by Corey McCartney here on From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game from the Kia Studios. We appreciate you joining us after a big Braves win. As big as it can be, I guess, down in South Beach. They're always big when the Braves won a game day, or, or excuse me, a day game. And they're also big when they win a series finale because those two things have not really lined up with the Braves' fortunes here in 2022. However, they're able to finish off the sweep. Four games against the Marlins that go in the win column as the Braves prepare themselves for the New York Mets. And we will get you all set up for that as From the Diamond continues. Before we jump into all of that, though, we're going to put the Braves conversation over to the side and take a big look at what's going on across the world of Major League Baseball with some of the biggest stories in our three-up and three-down segment. And, Corey, I'll lead off with this. News that shocked the baseball world this weekend. Padres star Fernando Tatis Jr. failed a PED test he has been suspended for 80 games, and all I can say about that is just, wow. I mean, I don't even know what to say about this. I mean, you, you take a guy who's 23 years old, who has 13 years and $335 million left on his contract. He's already been hurt in a motorcycle accident in the offseason, and then he has this where he's going to miss 80 games, be out for the, the rest of the year. The Padres, you know, were ultra-aggressive at the deadline with this initiative. That they were going to pair him up with Juan Soto for potentially the next three postseason runs. This one is off the table. I thought the the comments from uh, you know, GM AJ Preller, you know, where they talked about the lack of trust over the past six seven months. Pitcher Mike Clevenger, you know, saying that we're disappointed in him. Manny Machado saying we've gotten this far without him. Um, it's just it, it's tough to see. You know, we talked so long about Tatis and Soto and Acuna and how you had these you know, these three pillars for potentially the next 20 years of, of baseball. And are these guys going to pen these careers where we'll ultimately be talking about the three of them in the same breath and maybe all of them end up in Cooperstown? And, you know, that's obviously getting well, way ahead of ourselves, but this guy's off the table now. He's he's going to be likened to Ryan Braun and Robinson Cano, and it's always going to be there, a tainted product. I mean, it's really sad to think just three years into his career that he's ultimately thrown a lot of his future away. Yeah, he really has. And and let's unpack quite a few things about this as quickly as we can because we got other stuff to get to in this segment. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this because it is the latest example of an athlete, you know, ending up in a place where they want to tell you that I didn't know what happened, but the I didn't know what I was doing it doesn't really fly anymore. It didn't fly 20 years ago when the stuff really first they caught a lot of mainstream publicity when Major League Baseball was going through the real beginnings of their steroid scandal being unpacked in the public eye. It certainly doesn't fly right now. And I know he was saying that he uh, took this this steroid as something that he was using to treat ringworm. Meanwhile, Rainy Jazirely, who has been a baseball writer for a long time and is a dermatologist for the last 20 years, said that what he took, Clobistol, we, uh, we do not prescribe that for ringworm. Now, there is another drug that kind of sounds like that. So when Tatis put out his uh, official statement of why he took this steroid, 
it doesn't make any sense because you're talking about two different products. So maybe somebody's Google search led them down a rabbit hole for an excuse that doesn't really line up because we're talking about two specifically different types of steroids, one of them that is performance enhancing, the other one that is not. I think somebody hit Google pretty quick. I will say Whoops. that you know a former MLB manager told me that you know he even to take protein powder would not take stuff that was not signed off by the trainers and the medical staff for the team, and I really have a hard time believing somebody that is a franchise cornerstone mm-hmm. would be in a position where he has carte blanche to, to take, to ingest, to do whatever he wants, You know, not having that stuff be run by everybody unless he's trying to skirt things and do something he shouldn't be doing. And the other thing you brought up was the trust that has been lost between the Padres and, and Tatis and between his teammates and Tatis, and all of this is stuff that San Diego is going to have to deal with, and it comes – in the aftermath of them pulling off one of the great all-time trade deadlines by going out and getting Juan Soto along with Josh Bell, by getting Josh Hader, who has not quite been the Josh Hader that maybe we expect him to be. But uh, that aside, Tatis's return was supposed to be one of the big turning points for the Padres as they try to not just turn up the heat on the NL West where the Dodgers are playing otherworldly baseball right now, but giving themselves a big-time boost heading into October, and that simply is not going to happen for Tatis now because he's suspended for the 80 games. He's ineligible for the postseason. He won't be back until, what, sometime in maybe late May, I believe, is how all the math works out. But as you mentioned, this really just derails his entire career. And the accountability that he has lost with his teammates and the fans and the organization is going to be something that's difficult to rebuild and will only come with time if he's able to check all those boxes. And one of the other things I saw before we move on from this, and I I really want to get your reaction to it, was we already knew about the motorcycle accident. I did not realize that when Padres reporters asked him about it and said, so tell us about the motorcycle accident, and his response was, I kid you not, which one? The fact that you have more than one should tell you you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. I think you think back to Manny Machado getting into him with, with him in the dugout, and just there's all these little things that are building. I'm not trying to paint the picture of a, you know, a guy who's me first, but I, I think clearly, you know, as Mike Clevenger said, you hope he grows up and learns from this and learns that it's about more than just him right now. And I think that needs to be the operating procedure for everything for, for Fernando Tatis going forward. Well, let's remain out there in the West where the Padres will be without Fernando Tatis, but they do now have Juan Soto. They do have themselves squarely in the wild card race in the National League, but if they thought about winning the NL West, they might want to think again. The Dodgers are the hottest team in baseball. It's bordering on video game level production by these guys as well. Uh, since July the 1st, they are 32-6. and six. Uh, they've won 11 games and make that 12 games um, in a row. That was snapped on Sunday as they finally lost a game. But, I mean, this is a club that just when you think, you know, the Dodgers have themselves a month like June where maybe they are human, maybe they are. It is attainable to win the NL West. They go out and go on a tear like this. I mean, this is just a club that continues to be, this. I think, the standard bearer in the National League. If you want to get where you want to get as some team heading toward the World Series with those aspirations, you got to go through the Dodgers. That, that was their longest winning streak since 1976. It put them one shy of the franchise record since they moved to L.A. in 58. And think that they are 11-1 in August, 19-4 in the second half, 32-6 in July, a plus 251 run differential, <laughs> on pace for 114 <laughs> wins. And I think we really have to, to consider the fact that they may be able to take down the 0-1 Mariners in that record of 116 wins. I think this team is just so deep. And remember, they're doing this without Clayton Kershaw, without Walker Buehler, a banged-up bullpen, just so much depth offensively. They had six guys go deep on Saturday. I mean, it's just, it's just relentless. It absolutely is. So the Dodgers have the best record in baseball. They have been on quite a tear, and I believe – 
Uh, if you look at the standings, I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody's going to be sneaking up on them or sneaking up on the number one seed in the National League, more to the point, when it comes to the playoff alignment. Now, one of the other things that went on this week, I think it's always fun, was the Field of Dreams game that went down in a cornfield out in Dyersville, Iowa. That, of course, was where the movie Field of Dreams was filmed, and Major League Baseball has built that great setup there. And they're not going to have this game, though, I saw, Corey, in 2023 because they're doing more renovations to that complex. I think that's a real shame. Now, putting aside that the Cubs and the Reds are obviously not having very good years, these are two of the oldest and most storied franchises in baseball. So that matchup to me, still kind of cool in that respect, but I don't think I ever need any anyone to uh, give me what they gave me in the seventh inning stretch, which was a, a creepy hologram of Harry Carey singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. That one needs to be sent back to the idea room. I, I heard he's touring with Tupac. In I his hologram, not. and that's going to be Obi Wan Kenobi. That's right. It's going to be the hottest ticket of the fall here. Um, I thought Joey Votto's was ter- he was just tearing a heartstrings with the tweets before about having his last catch with his dad. Yeah. Um, you know, we lost over 14 years ago, and then you see the Griffies come out there and have that moment themselves. I guess we're spoiling the ending here if no one out there has actually seen Field of Dreams. But well, you've um, had 30 years. Yeah, that's so. true. I would love to see MLB though do something different with this opportunity because I think if you I mean, move the all-star game there. Consider that, I mean, the think about, you know, the ghost of the game's past, and if you could troll that out there on the place as literally the embodiment of that, I think it could be a really special environment because it throws a wrench into everybody's schedule, you know, in terms of getting everybody out there. And, they, and they, you know, it's obviously in the middle, middle of not say nowhere, but it, it's far off from any, you know, a city where there's an actual team at. I think some, I love the concept. I just think something about it needs to change. Yeah, there might be something. I don't know if the All-Star Game's it because those cities love the opportunity to get the All-Star Game. We did not get our opportunity in Atlanta last year. Hopefully at some point, you know, Major League Baseball will bring an All-Star Game to Truist Park. I think that it was certainly deserved. And, you know, if your uh, consolation prize is winning the World Series, Braves fans will certainly take that. But it would be nice to get that showcase, that midseason showcase there. And, you know, we'll see what they do. But the Field of Dreams game, I feel like rotating between all 30 teams over time is something kind of cool to give everybody the opportunity to experience. And uh, perhaps that's something that will uh, be in the cards in the future. Now, let's talk about the American League side of things. The Yankees, they were kind of at that level the Dodgers were for quite some time as the best record in all of baseball. They have not really been that of late. But Aaron Judge is making an assault on the single-season home run record, both for the Yankees, which, of course, is held by Roger Maris back in 1961, uh, but also, perhaps, the Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire's 70 home run plateau is not out of the question either. 16 home runs, Corey, in his last 25 games. That's an absolute assault by anyone's numbers. He's got 46 homers in 110 games coming into Sunday's action. I think Aaron Judge could make a run at this, but he's going to have to have another streak like the one he's on. He hit uh, number 46 through 113 games. Only Barry Bonds in 01 when he hit 48 in that span had more. Um, he's currently on pace for 67 home runs. So, um, I, I mean, this has been for you think about what that offense is now lacking. You know, certainly they're without, you know, they've been without Giancarlo Stanton, who's working his way back. Matt Carpenter is now off uh, for, you know, at least, uh, you know, six weeks is there, eight, six to eight weeks as he deals with a, you know, a fractured foot. Uh, but Aaron Judge just keeps absolutely bashing baseballs. He absolutely does. And he's doing it in his walk year before becoming a free agent. That I think is one of the craziest things about this home run assault because that was not something that Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, or, Anybody else during the steroid era was doing, this is a guy who could get paid big time from his best season to date. Now, speaking of New York, we know that the Mets are going to be heading to town and uh, will be in Truist Park against the Braves for the next four days. Keith Hernandez is going to be coming to town also to broadcast those games for the Mets, but 
The same cannot be said for his desire to do so for games against the Phillies, and I'm going to let him explain on SNY from this past week. You know, I've expressed to the front office, not to that front office, our front office of SNY, that I hate doing Philly games, so I guess they gave me to get the series off. You hate doing Philly games? Oh, because they've always never seemed to uh, disappoint. I mean, they, they, over the years, now they're hot right now, but I would like to see them. But, you know, as far as fundamentally and defensively, the Phillies have always been just, you know, not up to it. Maybe we can shoehorn you into the schedule now that they're playing well and maybe up to your standards. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. That's quite a power play by a broadcaster to not want to call certain games of certain teams because you simply just don't like watching them play. Now, Keith Hernandez is a Mets Hall of Famer. He had his number retired earlier this season. He's been known to make uh, quite a few statements of varying degrees of seriousness and maybe tongue-in-cheek. I don't know. That could be a lot of what was at play there. But, you know, I don't like watching the Phillies play defense either. (laughs) I'm sure that the Phillies fans don't. But that is quite a statement to make against your division rival and one that's been pretty good lately. Hernandez had an 8.53 OPS against the Phillies, the best of any team that he faced with more than 200 plate appearances. So why so would he hate he, seeing yeah, them? But you know, this is the same guy that asked Jerry Seinfeld to help him move. So you know, he's not not afraid to to put himself out there. Yeah, I don't know. That may be what we refer to as baseball's version of kayfabe, though. Either way, I found that to be quite humorous. Now uh, let's wrap up with a story that uh, made I think a lot of people feel good, but nobody more so than Winton Bernard and his family because. After over a decade in the minor leagues, he made his major league debut on Friday for the Colorado Rockies. Uh, this was multiple stops, many years of just grinding away on the minor league you know, buses and you know, maybe you get lucky and get a few plane flights as you get to the higher levels, independent ball, foreign leagues, all the things that this guy had to do. Well, he helped spark a game-winning rally in the seventh inning in a 5-3 victory over the Arizona Diamondbacks. I love these kinds of stories, Corey. We saw Vaughn Grissom at 21 debuting in Boston. Well, here's a guy at 31 years old debuting after a decade in the minors. you got to love these stories. A guy who played in the Atlantic League, Venezuela Winter League, the Australian Baseball League, the Mexican Pacific Winter League, the Dominican Winter League, the Constellation Winter League. I think the only I thing's missing. Heard of the last yeah, one. I think the only things missing were the Justice League and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> he was on everywhere, and he finally had his moment in the sun uh, playing in the majors. Yeah, absolutely tremendous. If you have not checked this out as well, the Colorado Rockies uh, tweeted out his phone call to his mother when he was called to the big leagues. He finally got to call her and tell her that he was going to be going to the show. That's the kind of thing that will tug at your heartstrings. It was extremely cool. I don't know how long he'll you know be in the big leagues and what he's going to be able to do with the rest of his opportunity, but from for now and for the rest of time, he can say he's a major league baseball player. So congrats to him. That is our three up and three down, six of the biggest stories across major league baseball. When we come back, we will take a trip around the big leagues to size up what's happening in the American League and National League races across all those divisions. So we hope you'll stick with us here. This is From the Diamond, Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, Sports Radio, 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back. This is Hour 2 from the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios in Midtown on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. We appreciate you making us part of your Sunday. A winning day for the Braves who sweep away the Marlins. Atlanta has won six games in a row as they get sent for the New York Mets to roll into town at Truist Park. And we'll be getting you set for that series later in the show as well. For now, though, We're going to take a look around the big leagues and in the American League, Corey, where we'll start in the East. And the Yankees, they were holding on to baseball's best record for quite a while this season, but they are 11-19 and in their last 30 games as far as heading into Sunday, just 3-8 and 
in the month of July over the first week and a half. So while no one else is really making up much ground against them, they have had injuries, they have had inconsistency, they have had some of the things that I guess they didn't really have to deal with them as much in the first 80 or 90 games, and now they're getting a whole bunch of them here late. Yeah, you mentioned the injury there. Matt Carpenter uh, not going to need surgery six to eight weeks to recover from a, a fractured foot after fouling a ball off of it. Um, I mean, it's crazy to think he's been arguably the most consistent hitter in that lineup, not named Aaron Judge. Uh, but he has been uh, you know, wildly productive for them. They're going to miss him. They have not seen Harrison Bader, who they got from the, the Cardinals in right. action yet. He's still got a protective boot on. Um, Clay Holmes, by the way, you know they have some questions at closer now. He th- he's blown th- uh, three saves in his last 11 appearances. Aroldis Chapman, is he going to get his job back? I think they have some question marks, and certainly you know, you think about what's happening in the, with the rest of that division and some teams you know, heating up in terms of the wild card race. No one's going to catch the Yankees, uh, but certainly uh, they have hit that lull that we wondered if it was going to happen. Yeah, and the only man who hasn't really hit a lull with the New York Yankees has been Aaron Judge. He's on pace, I believe, for 66, 67 home runs at this point, and he's hitting a home run basically every two and a half games, I believe, is the stat for the New York Yankees, but it's not just home runs. Now, I'm also not going to sit here and tell you to feel sorry for a club, and I'm sure nobody does. It's 30 games over 500 and has a run differential of two plus 204, but this is a team that really hasn't been given a run for its money by some of the rest of the teams in that division, particularly, I would say, Toronto and Tampa Bay. You can look at the Boston Red Sox, too. I mean, clearly it's a down year for them. They're sitting in the cellar of the American League East, and they're the only team with a losing record. And there's a good story in this division, and that's the Baltimore Orioles, who, as of Sunday afternoon, were only half a game out of a wild card spot, and nobody saw that coming. No, not at all. I mean, they, you know, they have a six-game stretch, though, against the Rays and the Blue Jays, and this feels like the most crucial stretch of games of them for the season if they're going to make the postseason for the first time since 2016. Um, you mentioned the Red Sox. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the curious case of Chris Sale, which keeps getting even more curious. Um, now a season-ending wrist surgery after a bike accident. He's made 11 starts, throwing 48 in a third inning since signing that five-year $145 million extension in 2019. Um, just whatever wild injury scenario you want to throw at Chris Sale, uh, he, you know, we always have these weird baseball injuries. Yeah. He's going to be having his name repeated on that. Uh, and much, to, you know, the I mean, the, the, the I don't know what you say, the Red Sox, they put so much into this guy, and they just are continually having to put him on the I.L. Yeah, because you think about the fact that they had to trade for him. They gave him a huge contract. They really have not gotten the return on investment. I mean, I know they won a World Series. So, I mean, that's obviously a big deal, and those flags fly forever. And Boston went an awful long time without a World Series, so you'll take all of them you can get, as will any of the 30 clubs, to be honest with you. But this has not been their kind of season. I'm interested to see what the Toronto Blue Jays are going to be able to do because if there was a time where the Yankees started to look vulnerable, well, the Blue Jays have come out and lost 7 out of 10 while the Yankees have lost 8 out of 10 and really haven't gotten the opportunity to maybe shave off three, four games in the standings, get this thing to within striking distance in the final 45 or 50 games of the year. The Blue Jays have now seen their wild card lead dwindle to the point where they're tied with the Mariners for the top wild card spot now. Ross Stripling's coming back. George Springer expected back this week. The offense is elite. Third and weighted, uh, weighted on base average. Fifth and run. Sixth and fan graph war. Uh, but their rotation questions continue to be there. Kevin Gosman, Alex Manoa have been fantastic. What are they going to get in that third spot? I've talked about Jose Barrios on the show before. Right. Um, I, I think they've got to get that figured out because they, they could – they could be in trouble in the postseason if they can't get production past those first two spots, and and the Mariners just keep building momentum. Uh, I I I'm gonna be fascinated to see how this plays out because I don't think I would have a month ago. I thought the Blue Jays were the best 
wildcard team. That is yeah. no longer the case. No, they've got the offense that can certainly put a scare into you, but their pitching staff has been shaky at best. And while they do have a couple of good starters, as you pointed out, that are doing their job, the rest of the starting staff has been questionable. They haven't had a whole lot of their relief core, you know, outside of their all-star closer, Jordan Romano, who've really been able to give them, I think, the kind of seasons they need. If you're going to catch a team like the Yankees or compete with a team like the Yankees for a division crown, you need a lot more things to go right than have gone right for the Blue Jays this year. Meanwhile, for the Rays, I feel like they're kind of in the same boat. They've had a lot of inconsistency this year. They've had a lot of injuries as well. And they've always been a team that it's the you know necessity. It's the mother of all invention, it seems like, with all of the moves that they make. They're doing things on a different wavelength than just about every other club. But this year, it has not been quite the same charmed life that has had them on pace to win, what, 95-plus games. That just doesn't look like it's in the cards this year. 13 times in, in 21 second-half games, they score three runs or less. They're 28th in runs scored since the All-Star break. Wander Franco is coming back soon. He was taking BP on the field, expected to get a rehab assignment going soon. Brandon Lowe's coming back on Monday. Harold Ramirez is, could begin a rehab assignment as well. So the offense has not produced, but they're getting the guys back that they need to get back. Um, clearly, they need to pick things up offensively. You know, one of the interesting stories that we talked about early on in the year was the Orioles, the organization, I should say, the strange decision to mess with the left field fence at Camden Yards and actually push it back. In a time in baseball history where it seems like more teams are looking for more offense in any way they could, for any club to walk in and say, you know what we need to do? We need to push the walls back was truly, I don't want to say next level, but apparently they know what they were doing because the Orioles have done just fine with their home runs in that ballpark. But opponents, meanwhile, have lost a little bit of the offense that they had against Baltimore. So maybe somebody did a study that actually turned up in a great way for Baltimore. I think Trey Mancini was talking about this. He was asked about it, even though he's now with the Houston Astros. Just what a benefit that's been this year that other clubs have not come in and worn them out hitting home runs to left field this year. Yeah, I mean, they've obviously had had problems uh, getting you know, marquee free agents to want to come to Baltimore in general as they've struggled, but they've well, really also been an and they've, and they've really had an issue with getting free agent pitchers to want to come there. And so certainly, you know, you create this situation where maybe the numbers could look a little bit better because you've you know made it that much harder to homer. But, um, you know, I just think in terms of them too, you know, getting guys up and, and having a lot of young prospects that they're trying to, you know, build around in terms of pitching, you know, certainly you want to create an environment, you know, where you're making it lucrative for them to go out and, and pitch at home and pitch well at home. Uh, but certainly, you know, can they get somebody to come there? This is the kind of situation where you hope that you've created something where guys want to come in and be part of it. Well, the Orioles at uh, four games over 500, I've often said that uh, winning baseball is one of the best promotions that you can have in terms of getting people to show up. Hopefully that's helping out at the turnstiles, but also when a club knows it can come in and there's the bones of a winning franchise that you're joining, that makes a huge difference as well. It's a shame to see him, I feel like, trade away a trade Mancini. It's not the, some guy, not the kind of player that you're building around as a franchise guy, but one of those building blocks and one of those pillars of your team, he most certainly could have been that. Meanwhile, in the Central, it is the Cleveland Guardians who have won 7 out of 10. They have moved into first place. Minnesota Twins have been faltering in the standings a couple of games back. White Sox, meanwhile, have won three games in a row and find themselves three games over 500 for the first time since, I believe, the first week of April. So... If there was a time to catch fire, if you're the White Sox, now would be the time to do it. But given their propensity for not catching fire this year, I'm still not convinced that this club, despite what is a wealth of talent, is going to be able to conquer a division that many people in the you know, in the offing of the season would have looked at and said, hey, this is the White Sox division to lose. And they are without Tim Anderson, who underwent surgery on August 11th for a left middle finger, finger tear. Uh, he's going to be out approximately six weeks 
Um, they did have the situation with Michael Kopech on Friday where he was pulled 85 pitches, nine outs from a no-hitter. Um, obviously, this is his first season as a starter. His innings are being monitored, but he had struck out a career-high 11. Uh, that was his second double-digit uh, strikeout effort of the season. He's been fantastic. I mean, it was the fifth time he's worked at least five innings and allowed one or no hits, which leads the ba- um, leads majors. He's done that against the Rays, the Dodgers, and the Yankees twice, so he's been fantastic. Um, they are two games out of the third wild-card spot, but they've got – Four against the Astros and three against the Guardians in the next week. So I think if they're going to make some hay, some some you know some ground up. Uh, but on the topic of the Twins, I mean, it, it's crazy how bad their bullpen has been. They went out and got Jorge Lopez from the O's. They are 28th in WAR in terms of that bullpen. Lopez blew a save uh, over the weekend. Uh, they just you know they have the offense. They have Sonny Gray, Tyler Malley. But I think that bullpen could ultimately be the reason the Twins don't end up making the postseason. It definitely could. And if you want to look at a reason why the White Sox are where they are, which is third place and, what, two and a half games out of first, they're the only team in baseball with a 500 or better seasonal record that has a losing record at home. If you're not able to win games in your own ballpark, that typically is not going to translate very well for you in the standings. And that's also true for the Chicago White Sox. Meanwhile, as you look down in the West, the Houston Astros, who the Braves will be seeing, their old World Series foe, 34 games over, 513-game lead on the Mariners. I know this division is not really necessarily the race we're going to spend a whole bunch of time talking about, but you did bring up the Mariners early, uh, or a little bit earlier here in this segment. Uh, Not exactly a blazing start to the second half, but the ground that they have made up over the last, what, month and a half has been staggering and they're doing it with several players either injured or not performing. They just got Julio Rodriguez back. That's a huge deal for them, quite obviously. But they find themselves in the middle of this wild card hunt. And if the Braves showed baseball anything last year, if you get hot at the right time of year, you can go on a run. And I think the Mariners, just after a couple of decades of sitting outside watching everybody else have the fun in October, they just want to get into this thing. Friday, for the first time in 105 days, they had Julio Rodriguez, Ty France, and Mitch Hanniger all in the starting lineup. Um, obviously, that is a you know a, a major uh, presence for them over the next two months. They're tied for the Blue Jays for that wild, top wild card spot. They had a nine-game winning streak that the Rangers snapped on Saturday. But uh, also got to mention Scott Service became the second Mariners manager to reach 500 wins. I uh, think post Lou Pinella, you know how they kind of had mm-hmm. a revolving door almost. They had six managers, two intra managers. Before they turn to him, he's the fifth active manager to reach 500 with one team. Brian Snicker, Craig Council, Dave Roberts, Kevin Cash. I mean, he's had a remarkable impact with that team. Um, and, of course, they had that, I mean, epic game against the Yankees yeah. earlier this week. That Maybe game you know, of the year. Yeah, I think, you know, that was fantastic. And I think it was a statement that for them to have their main guy now, Luis Castillo, going toe-to-toe with Garrett Cole. I mean, that was absolutely just a fantastic game. But um, they had the easiest remaining schedule of any team in baseball, collected 441 uh, uh, winning winning percentage from remaining opponents. So I think it's right there for the longest postseason drought in North America to come to an end. You know, we talked a lot about for the Braves, you know, maybe it starts to feel a little bit like 95. Maybe it'll feel a little bit more like that year where some things are going to go right. Well, for the Mariners, 95 was kind of a high water mark for them as well because it was a club just trying to find its way into the postseason. Had, you know, one of the most talented young players in baseball. And I'm not saying that Julio Rodriguez has reached King Griffey Jr. levels yet, but hey, I mean, the baseball world's very aware of him after what he did at Dodger Stadium and the home run derby and everything else he's been doing throughout his rookie season. It's an exciting player on an exciting team that went out and went for it at the trade deadline. This is what is great about baseball this time of year. And the Mariners have been trying to make things kind of great coming down the stretch for quite some time. And perhaps this will be a year in which they'll do it. You talked a little bit about the wild card and the top couple of teams 
in the wild card right now. Toronto Blue Jays kind of in a slide. Mariners, meanwhile, not the fastest start to the second half, but they did make that big statement against the New York Yankees, and they are sitting up there with the opportunity to find their way into October. The Rays and the Orioles, though, right outside of the, those final you know, wild card spots, still trying to maybe determine who exactly is going to be able to get there. I think it's going to be fun to see if Baltimore can continue to be the little engine that could even though they sold at the trade deadline and find their way into the postseason picture. They are a fantastic story, a team that was not supposed to be there, and you can say the same thing about the Cleveland Guardians who are in first place uh, in the Central right now. So those are the teams you love to see those great stories, but can they make any real noise when we get to uh, October? We'll have to wait and see, but certainly uh, for now they're a fantastic story as we sit here in August. Yeah, your wild card picture right now as we're looking at it has the Toronto Blue Jays with a one-game lead on the top wild card spot, Seattle a half-game lead, uh, for the second wild card spot, Tampa Bay sitting a game and a half in front of Minnesota and Baltimore, and two games out, you find the White Sox. Then you drop down under 500 with the Boston Red Sox. So there are six teams in this picture right now looking for those three spots. Your division leaders in the American League again. You have the New York Yankees in the East. You have Cleveland for now in the Central, though that race is going to be pivotal to the wild card uh, standings as well. And then you've got the Astros with a big lead out in the American League West. So that's what's happening across the American League. we got a lot more to get to, though, as we continue here on From the Diamond. And we're going to be talking about what's going on in the National League as those standings are, of course, going to be very much um, in the focus for the Atlanta Braves as the New York Mets are going to be rolling into town. And we got a pivotal series, a pivotal matchup to talk about with a big week of baseball for the Braves. It's not just the Mets. But you're also going to have that World Series rematch we've very much been looking forward to as well. The Houston Astros are going to be rolling into Truist Park. So you talk about an exciting week of baseball for the Braves. It is right out in front of us right now as the Braves will battle the New York Mets, the NL East, in the focus there. And then get that World Series rematch going. Should be a lot of fun. We're going to have more fun here on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is from the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, the game. And welcome back, Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, with you on from the Diamond, right here on Sports Radio 92.9, the game from the Kia Studios in Midtown. Braves winners on Sunday. That's the good news. A sweep. Furthermore, good news from Miami and a six-game winning streak to boot, Corey. But all of this comes after. They went up to New York and lost four out of five to the first-place Mets, and now we turn our attention to a whole new week where a whole new series between the Braves and the first-place Mets will take place. This time, it's not at City Field. It's at Truist Park. There's not five games in four days, just a straight four-game series. But, Corey, as we stare into this, as you, you look at things from the Braves' perspective, this is the most pivotal series of the year in the most important homestand of the year with both the Mets coming to town and the Houston Astros hot on their heels. This, I mean, without question, this is the biggest week of the season. It's not only the, the first time they'll have back-to-back series the rest of the way. It's the only consecutive series against teams that are in postseason position. The only time since May they're facing division leaders one series after another. Um, this is, I mean, this is going to be a massive week in terms of, you know, what happens in the National League East and then where the Braves sit in the wild card standings. And the Mets have won 8 out of 10. That, of course, includes beating up some on the Braves recently by some very simple math. Braves have won 7 out of 10. And if you look at their overall 11-game road trip by winning the last six and doing the simple math, they went 7-4 and four on the road trip. And mo- more times than not, when you got to spend a week and a half out on the road, you'll take that if you're the Braves or any team, really. But when you look at what they had to go through, both by losing that head-to-head battle with the Mets that cost them four games in the standings, 
an injury to Max Fried. Now, this concussion IL, we're not sure exactly how long he'll be out. Perhaps he will be back sometime this week. We just don't know yet. Travis Darno was dinged up. Uh, you had uh, Kyle Wright dealing with arm fatigue. And then you had a, a slew of minor league pitchers have to come in and help you out in the uh, Miami series to win that, that, that uh, four-game set. Because you had Cal Muller pitching well in Game One on Saturday, you had Ian Anderson, who you know doesn't sound like a minor league pitcher just yet, but he is because he got optioned this week. And then you have Bryce Elder do what he did on Sunday. So that cast of characters allowed the Braves to be able to kind of reset their rotation. We'll talk more about this later. But when it comes to the head-to-head matchup between the Braves and the Mets, I would say if there was one aspect where the Mets have far and away outperformed the Braves. Just about all season long, and, and, and at least in the last couple of series, they have outpitched the Braves from a rotational standpoint. Without question, and certainly, you know, it's been headlined by Max Scherzer. Now you've got Jacob DeGrom back, right. whose pitch count continues to build. You know, Carlos Carrasco was fantastic the last time these two teams met. You're going to have the three of those guys pitching for the Mets, along with Taiwan Walker, who the Braves really roughed up uh, this last time period. But certainly, Spencer Strider had his issues against the Mets. Charlie Morton's had his issues against the Mets. Um, you know, Jacob Odorizzi, you know, he's had some past issues with this team as well. So and we don't know who's going to get that start on Thursday. Could be Kyle Wright, could be Max Freed. Maybe they have to go back into the minor league depths. Uh, we will see. But certainly, uh, as we mentioned from the offset, this is a massive, massive week for this team. And it get four head-to-head with the team ahead of them in the division. It truly is. Four games in the standings are what's on the table for both of these clubs if everything were to go right for one and wrong for the other. I don't know if we can necessarily look at either of these teams and expect a sweep and you know, certainly for the Braves, with the way that the head-to-head battle between themselves and the Mets have gone this year, you know, the first, what, seven meetings, New York took four out of seven. You can kind of live with that. I mean, you're, you're treading water at the very worst. You're giving up a game in the standings. But once New York took those four out of five, it really it spread out this division again. And, and look at it right now. The Braves are five and a half games out as they look to begin this series with the Mets. And, you know, they're not going to have a chance like they did you know, prior to you know, really jump right into first place, they're going to have to continue winning. And that Astros hurdle that awaits them on the other side of that means that things could be a bit tougher. And we'll see how all of that plays out. Now, also happening in the National League East right now, and I know they're 11 and a half games out of first place, and they lost to the Mets the last couple of days. So that cost them a little bit in the standings. The Phillies, they've been at an arm's distance when it comes to you know, first place in this division. But when it comes to a team in the wild card hunt and one that's been playing some of the better baseball for the last couple of months, you can put the Phillies on that list. They're twenty or excuse me, they're forty-one and twenty-two under new manager Rob Thompson. So once they fired Joe Girardi, they got awfully good. And I believe they're twenty-five and fourteen without Bryce Harper. Those are a couple of encouraging numbers, but the Phillies know it's an uphill climb and they got a first hand look at the New York Mets as well this week and it's a tough baseball team. I mean, they have played the role of bully in the second half. Ten of their 14 wins have come against losing teams, which is good because they have a ton of those matchups remaining. They still have seven against the Nationals, seven against the Reds, six against the Marlins. Um, the Cardinals are the only NL team with a, with a worse strength of schedule among uh, remaining opponents. Bryce Harper you know, is, is working his way back. He had some, uh, some short throwing session uh, over the, this past week, but the priority to get him back is the DH. Kyle Schwarber is day-to-day, but I think they're trending towards being a little bit healthier off Offensively, and I know we don't talk about it enough. This remains the NL's top rotation in terms of Fangraph War. Uh, Aaron Nola, Ranger Suarez, Zach Wheeler, Kyle Gibson—they're the only rotation with four pitchers in the National League in the top 26 in, in more of the past 30 days. I know that's convoluted, but it tells you there is some serious depth to what's happening uh, with this Phillies rotation. And I'm, I'm not sure we're, we're giving it enough credit.
credit to this point. Well, and there was a time we were talking about the Braves rotation in kind of a similar light because you had all of these guys that were starting to put things together, and Spencer Strider was joining Max Reed and Kyle Wright and the numbers they were putting up. Charlie Morton was starting to figure things out. You still had Ian Anderson as a bit of a wild card, but now the Braves rotation is looking a little bit worse for the wear, at least in the short term. We'll see how it affects them long term. But that's what's going on in the National League East. We will preview the Mets series a bit more as we continue on. But let's turn our attention to the National League Central, where the Cardinals and Brewers were matching up this week. And it was St. Louis pushing past the Brewers and holding on to first place as these two teams clashed over the weekend. A game and a half separates St. Louis and uh, Milwaukee in this race. I still think the Cardinals are probably, at this point, the team to beat. But there's not much separation between these two clubs, and it looks like any given time a series here or a series there could be what decides this division in the final 45 or so games. I mean, Paul Goldschmidt continues to put up MVP-level production. Him and Arenado have been the game's hottest hitters the past two weeks. Um, Arenado has the best average the past two weeks, the best war tying. Uh, he's actually just ahead of Aaron Judge for the MLB lead. They are second and seventh of the past two weeks and weighted on base average. And I mentioned the easy schedule that the Phillies have. St. Louis has the NL's easiest remaining schedule, a 456 opponent winning percentage. They have eight with the Nationals, eight with the Reds, nine with the Pirates, and eight against the Cubs. Winning those head-to-head matchups against the Brewers and that easy path, I mean, I think you almost have to, at this point, uh, think that you're going to be penciling the Cardinals in for a postseason spot. Yeah, I mean, they've been a team that uh, typically figures out a way just about every single season. Having Paul Goldschmidt playing the role of MVP, that certainly has been helpful. But this is a club that's had to deal with its own pitching issues and a slew of other things. But not only has Goldschmidt been playing well, I think they've gotten some really good production out of Nolan Arenado in his second year out of Colorado and in St. Louis. I mean, he's certainly holding down the hot corner for him and making a, a big difference for that club this year as well. So those couple of guys kind of leading the, the charge. And that's not the way you think about when you think about the Cardinals over the last decade plus. Usually it was, well, Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina. And I know Albert Pujols is in his farewell tour there, and that's all going on as, as well. But, you know, this is just a new and different kind of Cardinals team, but a very similar Cardinals team to a lot of clubs that they've put together over the past 20 or more years, uh, really, if you go back and look at it. Uh, meanwhile, as we go out into the National League West, we find the Los Angeles Dodgers, who we talked about earlier on. They finally lost a game. I'm sure they'll lose another one before the season's over. It's bound to happen. Uh, but they had a 12-game winning streak, and in doing so, they were able to push themselves uh, far o- further away, I should say, from the San Diego Padres, who might have been winners at the trade deadline, but have not been winning much baseball since the trade deadline. They've lost 6 out of 10, have the Padres, uh, and they're 16 games out of first place. Now, we knew that Trading for Juan Soto was not a move that meant, hey, you're going to catch the Dodgers now. But this was all about strengthening up and making it a tough matchup when it came to October when you had to go toe-to-toe with the Dodgers. We also thought that the rehabbing Fernando Tatis Jr. would be rejoining the San Diego Padres. That now will not be happening until sometime in 2023. And that news continues to reverberate, maybe not as much just in the National League West, but the playoff picture, because you look at the Braves in the wild card holding that top spot. The Padres were pushing them for quite a while. It felt like if the Braves started to teeter, maybe the Padres would overcome them with their new personnel and the return of Tatis. But how quickly these stories can change. Corey. I mean, they're still a really, really, really good course, team. And now you think about the fact that you're not getting Tatis back in 2022, but you ultimately have a chance to replace that superstar level production with Juan Soto and you've got Josh Bell and you've got Josh Hader. Um, I think this, you know, still is a very, very good Padres team. And I will say uh, on the point of the Dodgers, I'm willing to admit that I may have been wrong with Joey Gallo. Um, in eight games as a Dodger, he has a 900 OPS um, 
Justin Turner, Max Muncy, Chris Taylor. I, I don't know how the Dodgers keep doing these reclamation projects, but somehow, some way, I mean, he was struggling in New York. He could not hit off speed. He's got a 1,300 slugging against off speed in this short time as a Dodger. So I don't know what these guys, how, how they're able to pull this off, but it looks like they may be pulling it off with one of the guys who was one of the worst hitters in baseball in pinstripes. I think there's something to be said for change of scenery being a very necessary part of a trade. And for Joey Gallo, I think the story in New York had come to a close. There was just not going to be a happier ending there or another chapter that seemed like it was going to get any better. He had been dreadful in pinstripes. So maybe even getting out of there, getting a fresh approach, getting a different set of eyes from some hitting coaches and and the the way that the Dodgers clearly approach, the way that they attack seemingly everything. I mean, you know, I heard from Kenley Jansen earlier this year when he was talking about just the Dodgers' overall approach to things and what the difference was in being in the Atlanta Braves clubhouse and being in the Dodgers clubhouse. And clearly those are the only two big league teams he's played for. But he said, you know, those guys are just relentless about winning. That's what they're there for. I mean, it is very much, and it is for players, it's a business, but there's something to be said to the level to which the Dodgers take this thing. I mean, it's not just going out and hiring a bunch of mercenaries and paying them a whole bunch of money and just sending them out on the field. I mean, the Dodgers are dedicated to this thing year in and year out, trying to solve the puzzle of how to be the best team in baseball. And it would appear that when it comes to Joy Gallo or whoever else that they're throwing out there that maybe another team didn't want, that some of it's rubbing off on a guy that was you know, seemingly heading the wrong direction in his career. I mean, he just he's just getting things done that he couldn't do seemingly in a, in pinstripes. And I did hear him mention, "Hey, I'm paying you know a ton of money, uh, you know, to to live in a cramped apartment in New York. Now I get to say play the same amount of money, and I get to see the beach, and I get to see the water. So I'm sure that that helps too. You know, the whole like you know, clear your mind, Don Draper, go out there, you know, and kind of <laughs> feel the whole vibe. Uh, Joey Gallo's living it all right now. So you're saying maybe he just needed to go outside. That's right. The guy that plays outside <laughs> just needed to go outside some, maybe away from a ballpark, but. Whatever the case is, things are working out for Joey Gallo. Things are more than working out for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who, again, if you missed it a little bit earlier, uh, have been 32-6 and since July the 1st. I mean, they have been on an absolute tear. Their 12-game winning streak is, if they needed that, has helped them hold off the Padres, who, despite adding Juan Soto, getting this Fernando Tatis Jr. news is is a bit of a setback for him, but I I think he hit the nail on the head, too, Corey. I mean, if they didn't know they were going to lose Tatis, obviously, before, so how much bigger does that make the Juan Soto trade on the other side of this? Because you do have a superstar walking in the door. It's just under different circumstances than you thought. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest piece of it, right, is that you still, you know, you like Machado said, they've gotten this far without him, but now you know you have a guy in Soto that can yeah. you know, provide that consistent production near the top of your lineup. This is still an extremely good Padres team. I do feel like, and it's not to continue to just beat this drum because we are going to take a bigger look at the wild card here in a moment, but it is difficult for a club to have to come to terms with something as big as the trust issues, the accountability issues, and you know, it's a tough look to have somebody on your team. I mean, Manny Machado's a $300 million player. Fernando Tatis, a $300 million player. Uh, Juan Soto might get as much as both of those guys when he goes to free agency. I don't know. But for the time being, you know, he's a very expensive and very good ball player as well. But to have one of these guys walk out and say, hey, we've done pretty well without you, that's a, a, a pretty big condemnation of what you've done this year if you're Fernando Tatis between the motorcycle accident and now the performance-enhancing drug suspension. And the Padres are still a very good team on the other side of that. Braves a six-game lead as far as the top wild-card spot. Padres hold the second wild-card spot by a half a game over the Philadelphia Phillies. Then you find uh, the Milwaukee Brewers and or the Cardinals, depending on how this uh, this uh, divisional race in the Central could flip. But those seem to be the four clear teams outside of the three division leaders that we're talking about. Dodgers and Mets seem to be walking away with their divisions at the moment as we sit here. 
Uh, but in this wild card race, I mean, it seems like we know the four teams that are vying to get these spots, and the Braves are in the spot that they want to as they won their 70th game of the season and their sixth in a row after what could have been a big-time setback in New York. The Giants are six and a half back, and this next week is going to be huge for them, this upcoming stretch. They wrapped up a series against the Pirates. They have 12 in a row against losing teams. After that, they face the Twins, Padres, Phillies, Dodgers, and Brewers. If the Giants are going to make up ground and be a factor in this race, these next 12 games are going to determine that. Otherwise, I think we're just going to have to count them out for October. Yeah, I mean, and the Giants are under 500 as of the action through Sunday. So it's a long shot as it was. They didn't trade away all of their pieces at the deadline, which was a little bit curious. But as far as your divisional leaders, you know it's the Mets in the East, it's the Cardinals in the Central, and it is the Dodgers out West. When we come back, we will preview that series and a big week for the Atlanta Braves. He's Corey McCartney. I'm Grant McCauley. This is Sports Radio 92.9. Now, back to more from the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, the game. And welcome back as we wrap things up here on From the Diamond. It's Grant McCauley. It's Corey McCartney. Sports Radio 92.9, the game from the Kia Studios. And, of course, we know Truist Park is going to be the place for the biggest series of the year for the Atlanta Braves. And if this sounds like Groundhog Day, well, it's because we were saying this about a week ago. The biggest series for the Braves was that five-game set at City Field. We saw the Mets take four out of five there, Corey. But now it is an opportunity for a redemption, perhaps, for the Braves. And no better time than now to start making a climb up in the standings. They're five and a half games out as they invite the Mets to Truist Park for this four-game series. As we look at the probable pitchers in this one, it's going to be Spencer Strider on Monday. Carlos Carrasco is slated to go for the New York Mets. we got Charlie Morton against Taiwan Walker in Game 2 on Tuesday. Then Jake Odorizzi against Max Scherzer on Wednesday is what we know for sure as far as the first three games are concerned. Jacob deGrom is looming on Thursday, but we do not know who will pitch for the Braves with Max Fried on the concussion IL. Could be activated if he passes all the, the tests and checks all the boxes he needs to, I guess I should say. Kyle Wright dealing with arm fatigue is another option. They skipped a start for him. He did not land on the injured list. So those are two of the options. And then, of course, we have a trio of pitchers who did pretty well over the weekend in Miami, but that is a different beast than the New York Mets, and we know that quite well. Uh, Ian Anderson, Kyle Muller, and, of course, Bryce Elder all threw really, really well. Uh, I don't know if any of them will factor into that Thursday start. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. But when you look at these matchups on paper, and I go back to something we just talked about in going through the National League standings, Corey, the New York Mets, from a starting pitching perspective, have outpitched the Atlanta Braves at almost every turn in the meetings between these two clubs, 12, I believe, thus far. Um, those 12 games, the Mets rotation has had the Braves rotation's number, or more importantly, has had the Braves lineup's number. Yeah, I mean, Carlos Carrasco has a 1.93 ERA versus the Braves in two starts this year. I mean, he's he's been fantastic against them. Uh, you know, Max Scherzer, a you know a 1.34 uh, ERA in the second half. He's a .64 ERA in 14 in- innings against the Braves with two starts at 1.43 batting average against. And obviously, we know Jacob Degrom uh, was just a monster the last time that the Braves saw him. The one uh, you know big uh, stop sign in this though for the Mets is the fact that Taiwan Walker was just uh, in a bad way the last time that. Uh, the Braves saw him. You know, he couldn't even get out of the second inning. Uh, the Braves just ate him alive, uh, giving up uh, eight runs on seven hits with two home runs. So um, the current Braves have an 865 OPS against uh, against Taiwan Walker with four homers. Um, Robbie Grossman didn't even get to see him last time. He's done the most damage, 1100 OPS. So uh, maybe he gets an opportunity here. But um, this Mets uh, rotation obviously is very dangerous. We know the struggles that this Braves pitching staff has also had against this lineup. I mean, Spencer Strider. You know, I mean, he's he's had his issues against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go 
back to his July start, and the Mets hit 214 against his four-seamer there. Uh, but the, the time before that, they hit 500 against the pitch. So how does he adjust? How does Charlie Morton adjust? The Mets have gotten to him for five runs on six hits. His first time, the last time they met, gave up four in uh, five and two-thirds. So uh, I don't know what Jake Odorizzi is going to do against a lineup he doesn't see very much, but certainly Strider and Morton are big time for those first two games. Only a couple of runs for Odorizzi in his Braves debut against the Mets, but chased in the fifth inning. He was dealing with a hamstring issue, but then you look at what happened down in Miami. Only a couple of runs, but he gave up eight hits and needed nearly 90 pitches to get through four innings. So Odorizzi still looking for his first quality start as a Brave or a start that really gives Atlanta a chance to win. And to go blow for blow with somebody like Max Scherzer, that's going to be a big-time challenge for Odorizzi. And more specifically, it's going to be a big-time challenge for the Atlanta Braves lineup. One of the big stats that jumped off the page to me in the five-game series and it won't be surprising because when I tell you this, you realize that Max Scherzer pitched in that. Uh, Carlos Carrasco and Jacob deGrom also faced the Braves in that five-game series. 57 strikeouts for the Atlanta offense in those five games. Now, the silver lining of that series, if there is one, and I don't know that this is the case, but a positive to take from that series was that Ronald Acuna Jr. had perhaps his best series of the season, or at least his best series in quite some time. And it seemed to fuel the fire for a very good road trip for Ronald Acuna Jr., who did play on Sunday, didn't start. I believe he could have started if the Braves needed him to, but no reason to push it down in Miami. And Atlanta did complete that sweep without him. But you need Ronald Acuna Jr. doing the kind of things he's been doing for the last week and a half as you face off against the New York Mets. And again, not to overblow this, but you can't undersell how important this series is, a head-to-head matchup with four games against the team you're chasing and you're back by five and a half. And then also some history here on the line for the Mets. Uh, they've won or tied all 16 of their series against division opponents. That equals the longest streak since the Braves did so in 1999. So the Mets going for a record as they come here to Atlanta. And, you know, it's not just about this series and, and certainly the one later this uh, upcoming week for the Braves against the Astros. It's that what lies ahead. I mean, they 16 straight against losing teams that the Mets are going to have in September, 24 in all in the last month. The Braves cannot rely upon someone else to go out and help them eat into that division lead because they have to win these games. I know they have... They have you know, a late-season series against them at uh, Truist Park, but they've got to get back into this division by winning these head-to-head matchups. You've got to be within shouting distance of them, and really closer than shouting distance. You might want to be, at, at the very least, you know, able to have the head-to-head series actually mathematically work out for you to switch spots in the division with them, but you don't want that to be the thing you depend on solely, those final three meetings between these two clubs. However... You know, you'll take whatever you can in these head-to-head matchups when it comes to gaining ground. And we know that the Mets' strength of schedule is a little bit easier road than the Braves is. And also, Atlanta is spending an awful lot of time on the road here in the second half. This 11-game road trip, the longest for the Braves all season long. Meanwhile, uh, the Mets not only get to face a little bit more favorable schedule down the stretch, but uh, they've also been doing it home or road. It hasn't really mattered. I thought an interesting stat about the Mets who beat the Phillies on Sunday uh, they are now 35 games over 500 for the first time since back in 2006. Uh, this from Sarah Langs of MLB. Uh, and also, if you want to really go back, should they beat the Braves on Monday or find a way to get over the 35 games over 500 that they already are, it'll be the first time they've been that high up since 1988. So this Mets team is doing something that the New York club has not done in a very, very long time when it comes to winning and winning with uh, quite the frequency. 
I'm going to be interested to see what does Jacob DeGrom do in that start because he threw 59 pitches in his first start, then 76, and then 76, his last one on Saturday, had a soft limit of 80 as he get closer to 90 in that next start. Um, the slider stats for him have just been insane. He's thrown 84, an almost 60% whiff rate. People are batting 103 against that pitch. I mean, since returning from the aisle, 28 strikeouts, one walk, a 162 ERA. He is as dominant as he, you could hope him to be um, if you're a Mets fan. Mm-hmm. And certainly uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how long is he going to work against this Braves team because he was so good the last time he faced this lineup. I would think if he's approaching 80 pitches in his last outing, and that was his third start since returning from the injured list and start number four, maybe you're at that 80, 85 count. I know they're not going to push him 95, 100 pitches. I, I just can't see that happening anytime soon. Maybe that's something that you – build up to by the time you get to the first, second, third week of September and down the stretch, hopefully he'll be able to do that if you're the Mets. But right now, I think there are still some limitations, but you talk about doing a lot with a little. Jacob deGrom has done an awful lot. And by little, I mean your pitch count. But as far as the stuff is concerned, it's as good as it's ever been. I mean, this is a guy that if he doesn't pitch again, is probably going to walk into the Hall of Fame pretty easily as well. I mean, that's the kind of historically good pitcher he has been. Uh, the Mets run support notwithstanding. You can't knock what Jacob deGrom brings to the table every fifth day for them. So this is a big return and has been one of the big reasons why as we've looked into the second half of the season and really post-trade deadline and the battle between these two clubs up in New York that the Mets were able to handle their business and the Braves now find themselves five and a half games out as they head into this four-game series against these two clubs. And I want to circle in on Spencer Strider for a minute because we did talk about this a little bit last week, but more so... I think now that you're back in a head-to-head battle between these two clubs because Spencer Strider didn't pitch in Miami. Would have seen him at some point, I think, later in the Mets series, maybe with another matchup with DeGrom. We don't know. But he had some comments about the Mets' batted ball luck and you know what the Mets have or haven't done in October, and that's fine. If that's what you want to hang your hat on, I guess you can. But it's going to be interesting to see how he attacks this lineup more to the point. I don't care what your comments are. I mean, Everybody can armchair quarterback those all you want to in hindsight. But, you know, the Mets were able to, even with C.B. Buckner behind the plate, and he is an awful home plate umpire more times than not, and he was in that game, and that that is worth pointing out. I'll put that out there on the table, and I'll say it because I wasn't the guy on the mound. You still have to find a way through it. And there was a big difference between the way that Max Fried handled his frustrating bat of ball luck and the way that he discussed it afterwards and the way that Spencer Strider went about it. And, I know there's also a difference in experience and age and a lot of other things, but I think for Spencer, you know, maybe more so the concentration on finding a way to put away some of these Mets hitters because they really worked him over. They did. I mean, cliches are cliches for a reason, right? And you wonder when people adjust to a rookie, how does the rookie, you know, follow that up with their own adjustments? Has a 5-1-2 ERA over his last four starts. And you go back to that July 12th outing that he had against the Mets, and I mean, Four and two-thirds, but he was really strong. One and run, eight strikeouts. Then he gets tagged for four earned on six hits with five Ks on two and two-thirds innings the last time he faced the Mets. Uh, shortest outing as the starter on August 7th. And I mentioned the Mets getting to his fastball. Four hits, the second most of any of his starts. A 25% whiff rate, a 12.5% put-away rate. The least effective he's been with that vaunted four-seamer all year long. Um, I just, I'm curious, how does he adjust 
to a Mets lineup that has been really good against fastballs. You look in, you know, in terms of, of weighted fastball runs above average, they're in the top five in the league. You know they can hit that pitch. How is he going to adjust? He really didn't throw any change-ups the last time that he saw them. Obviously, it was an extremely short start. But you go back to one before that, he sprinkled that pitch in a little bit. So how does Strider adjust against a, a really aggressive Mets lineup? Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see how he does that. His dozen starts he's made since his first start of the season, so that one out against the Arizona Diamondbacks right before the Braves went on their nice 14-game winning streak. He was charged with five runs. There was some bad defense behind him. But if you look at what he's done overall in terms of start-to-start and runs allowed since then, he has allowed more than two earned runs just twice. One of those was the five earnings that he allowed to the New York Mets that happened on, what, July the 17th? And then if you look at four runs or more, then there's just one more of those. And that last one was against, excuse me, that was five earned against the Washington Nationals. Four earned, though, meanwhile, last time against the Mets, as you laid out. He's not walking very many guys, though. He's only walked more than two batters, what, twice in those 12 starts. So you know what you're getting out of Spencer Strider. He's a guy that attacks the strike zone, and he really piles up strikeouts, but I think by being around the strike zone as much, and I can't believe I'm saying this, maybe that works to the benefit of the Mets because they do seem to have a pretty disciplined and pesky approach when it comes to grinding out these at-bats. And I hate to keep using that term, but if there's any term that is more apropos of this New York Mets offense, they do know how to grind out some at-bats. They do. I mean, they have one of the lowest uh, hard hit rates in the majors, but they have one of the highest contact rates and one of the highest batting average on balls and plays rates uh, in the majors, and you know, as we've mentioned before, uh, that that's not necessarily a recipe for a team to have success in 2022. Uh, but the the Mets keep you know uh, circumnavigating what is the the common thought process in baseball <laughs> here, and they're getting around it and producing and scoring a lot of runs. Uh, so certainly, he's going to have to adjust. I mean, it, it just is part of the deal. There's a, the book gets out on you as a rookie. We know he throws really hard. That plays to the Mets' advantage. Both both with the, the way they approach at-bats and the fact that they eat up fastballs. So I think his start looms large. I mean, I know Charlie Morton, you know, has not had the, the best of runs here uh, of late, and he has chased good outings with bad. Uh, I think how Spencer Strider sets a standard in this series against Carlos Carrasco, you know, who has a 178 ERA over the last 30 days, which is seventh in the National League, really looms large. Yeah, and overall for Spencer Strider, I mean, an ERA since joining the rotation under 3.5, fielding independent pitching just over 2 and opponents are OPSing just over 550 against him. So he's not giving up a lot of damage. I mean, every once in a while, every single pitcher is going to have a clunker, and it can be for a variety of reasons. It can be you went out there and you got hit hard. It can be you went out there, you didn't have command, and you walked a bunch of guys. All of these things are in play. It never seems to be the latter, though, for Spencer Strider. It's typically not a whole bunch of walks. I mean, maybe once in a blue moon for him, as in that start against Colorado, but even that was at Coors Field, so I don't really know what to make of that. But Either way, we've seen enough of Spencer Strider to know that, by and large, hitters are going to have a hard time working against him, but the Mets, for whatever reason, have managed to figure out a little bit of something, and now it's going to be up to Spencer Strider to figure out something against the New York Mets. Again, the probables in this series, Strider against Carrasco on Monday, Charlie Morton against Taiwan Walker on Tuesday, Game 3 is on Wednesday, it's Jake Odorizzi and Max Scherzer, and then the Braves have to pick a starter to face Jacob deGrom. That sounds like the kind of lottery maybe you don't want to win, but the Braves... (laughs) They need to win as many of these games as possible. Your keys to victory in this series, Corey, I would say I'm going to go with starters versus starters. The Braves may not have to outpitch the Mets there, but they've got to at least be able to keep up in some of these games. They have to stay in the games and hope that the offense can just put enough pass because certainly Carrasco, you know, Scherzer, DeGrom, you feel like those are going to be really tough outings for them. 
I think they'll have success against Walker again, but what can they get from those other three guys in terms of you know just matching what's been a really good uh, Mets rotation? Uh, certainly with uh, DeGrom back, it's been that much better. So a, a big test for the Braves offensively without question. That it will be. The Braves have won six games in a row after their sweep down in Miami. The Mets, meanwhile, five-and-a-half game lead in the National League East as these two teams meet starting on Monday. That'll wrap things up here on From the Diamond. For Corey McCartney, I'm Grant McCauley. We will catch you next Sunday on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.